everybody. I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. That was our brand new theme music by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Thanks, Kelly. And we're the Verta Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We might on occasion recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. Uh, I was going to say, like, what are some of those Vertigo comics <laughs> that we recap and review? Well, let me tell you. And today we are doing a story from Vertigo preview number one, and then we are doing Sandman special number one. All right, so this Vertigo preview came out in 1992. This is basically a big magazine that Vertigo released as a promo or an ad that contained samples of all of their series. And it was mostly issues or excerpts from issues. But Neil Gaiman wrote an original story as a representative of Sandman. Oh, it's, it was mostly excerpts, so it wasn't, like, full of original stuff? Right. That would be such a cool idea. I wish they had done Rebirth that way. They give you, like, an eight-page story. Like, can you imagine how sweet that would have been if instead of, like... A bunch of, like, X-Files type shit of people, like, being like, big things are coming, <laughs> you know? And just sort of, like, saying vague but ominous shit to each other. If the DC Rebirth special had been, like, here's an eight-page story for the entire line. Wow. Yeah. Like, that would have been fucking hot shit. So this one is Fear of Falling from Vertigo Preview number one, written by Neil Gaiman, art by Hellblazer veteran Kent Williams. Yeah, and the colors here are by Sherilyn Van Walkenberg. I think that's Van Valkenberg. Oh, yeah, right, you are. Sometimes I pronounce V's as W's. I don't know when you're supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> I think a V is always a V, but a W is sometimes... Is sometimes a, a V? A W is sometimes a V. A V is always a V, and not a W unless you are Mr. Chekhov. Alright. <laughs> but, I mean, Mr. Chekhov must be doing it for a reason. <laughs> right? Like, I'm not sure if Mr. Chekhov... There's contexts, Sean. <laughs> There's contexts. Okay, do we have anything else to say about this story before we... Oh, well, maybe we should briefly mention the fact that it is thrown in at the beginning of trade paperback number six, if you're looking for it, and it is just... You jump right into it with no introduction. Right. It is, in fact, before the table of contents. It's right. prologue to the whole book, in a manner of speaking. Yeah. So we open on our protagonist, Todd. He is up late, quote, losing it fast. Yeah. He is watching a movie. He doesn't know what it is, but he says it has Jimmy Stewart and some blonde woman, Kim Novak, maybe, or Tippi Hedren, and a plot I just couldn't follow. That's obviously an allusion to the movie vertigo oh that's clever right uh so todd gets a visitor named janet and she wants to talk about her character in the play they are putting on yeah and janet looks like dr crusher from star trek the next generation oh wow kind of yeah like kind of a lot todd says that he will not be at rehearsal tomorrow he is pulling out of the play as their conversation goes on we learn that it's todd's show he's the writer and director from the script that Janet is carrying, we can see that the title is The Typhoid Mary Blues, and she mentions it has songs. <laughs> right. He says he's leaving because he's scared. Janet is annoyed with him. What is it you're afraid of? Failing or succeeding? Good night, Janet. So Janet leaves, and then Todd falls asleep. And his narration picks up. Some dreams are different. This dream was one of the different ones. 
He's dreaming that he's climbing up a rock face, and he hates that because he's afraid of heights. Right, but in his dream, he's climbing like he's born to it, and he finally gets to the top, and atop the tiny precipice of this rock, Dream is standing there. And then I realize that I'm not alone. And that is, by the way, our title page. Talk for a second here about how this artist renders Dream. He looks very pencil-necked and awkward. Yeah, that's fair. He's casting a lot of deep shadows on his face, and Kent Williams draws people, particularly Dream, but people in general, with a lot of kind of extraneous lines on their face. He almost looks patchwork. Yeah, that's true. He looks like he's wearing some kind of weird mask or something. But as usual, he is tall, pale, with the spiky black hair, and accompanied by his raven. Right. Who we get in the foreground of this great full-page spread. So Todd starts to tell Dream why he hates heights. And if you've read this series before, you might not be surprised to know that it dates back to a dream. Hey, I don't want to bore you. Are you interested in dreams? You might say that. So Todd had a dream when he was five or six that he was trapped in a house full of witches. On the next page here, we see three witches, but they look like they're all the same age. Not a Hecate appearance. True. Good point. Also, the way that they're drawn is sketchy as hell. Yeah, that's fair. When we cut into the dream, the style gets even more abstract and sketchy than it already had been. Yeah, he even does Todd with three-fingered hands during this dream sequence. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of, like, James Thurber-style comical illustrations. Anyway, to escape from the witches, Todd climbs onto the roof of the house, but suddenly the roof tilts and throws him off. I could see the ground coming up below me, and I knew that if I hit the ground, I'd die. I knew that. It didn't matter if it was a dream or not. I'd still be killed, just as hard as if it were real life. Worse, maybe. He knew he would die for real if he hid in the dream, so he just made the dream stop, made himself wake up. But he found himself trapped in a sleeping body, frozen in the dark for hours. Right, he's basically describing sleep paralysis. Right, this is a somewhat common condition caused by waking before REM sleep is finished, muscles remain turned off. Uh, It usually happens in children, and it usually doesn't last for hours. So at this point, the raven jumps into the conversation. You're running away, aren't you? I'm not running away, it's just, I don't know. Todd says he's afraid of doing something stupid. And if you do something stupid, what then? Aren't you scared of falling? It is sometimes a mistake to climb. It is always a mistake never even to make the attempt. And Dream goes on to ask, But is it that bad to fail? That hard to fall? He goes on, Sometimes you wake, and sometimes, yes, you die. But there is a third alternative. Those two lines of dialogue are given a full page. Uh, It's a simple two-panel page of Dream reaching out to let his raven land on his hand. And then a close-up on Dream's face, with a star in his eye. Todd asks, and that is? And then finds himself alone on the rock. A bolt of lightning strikes the peak, and Todd begins to fall. But this time, he remembers Dream's words, and he doesn't wake himself up. And I stayed with it, and I didn't wake up, and I didn't die. Now we're at the rehearsal. Janet is gathering everybody around to say that she has some news about Todd. But just then, Todd shows up and starts directing things. Todd, I thought... Can we talk about it later? Now, at this point, Todd starts calling for all of the characters in the play to take their places. I need God, Sappho, the Hanged Man, the Slave of the Lamp, and Typhoid Mary on stage. 
I think I hate Todd's play. <laughs> yeah, I definitely wrote that down as well. Kind of silly. I mean, I didn't write down that I think I hate it, but I wrote down that list of characters. Now, Janet notices the difference that's come over Todd. Sometimes you wake up. Sometimes the fall kills you. And sometimes, when you fall, you fly. Okay, everybody, let's take it from the top. Okay, so that doesn't do a half bad job of introducing us to the concepts of the series. There's this guy, Morpheus, he lives in dreams. The series examines dreams. Yeah, and their impact on people's lives. I was sort of conflicted about this story. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, I really wanted to like it because okay. it's actually an optimistic story from, <laughs> yeah. from Sandman and Neil Gaiman, which we don't get a ton of. Mm -hmm in this series but on the other hand it is kind of i think it might be a bit trite yeah that's a good way of putting it i definitely think you know morpheus's role in this story he shows up and gives some fairly cliched advice and that's not necessarily putting the character on his best foot forward right although i, I don't i don't particularly dislike the metaphor of like being afraid to fall but sometimes when you fall you fly mm -hmm. that's i don't know i i guess if you just put it in really simple terms like that it sort of sounds like a poster that you might see on an elementary school classroom <laughs> wall yeah but i i don't know i as a metaphor i think it's kind of cool it's all right and it works reasonably well with this story as a visual presentation in a way that it wouldn't work if it were a prose story we actually get this ridiculous tiny mountain that he's climbing yeah the art does a lot here i was not crazy about the art in this issue one of the measures that i judge every artist by is whether or not i think their morpheus is cool looking mm -hmm. and this one is just way too awkward and sketchy looking for me i don't mean sketchy like he looks shady i mean like the art is sketchy well there is a definite hobo look to morpheus in this issue he's got a big ratty coat yeah and I wasn't really okay with going into super cartoony style for the dreams with the three-fingered hands and stuff. Nonetheless, I will acknowledge that the art does a lot of the storytelling here. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Well, with that, let's move on to Sandman special number one. Yes, let's do. This is The Song of Orpheus, written by Neil Gaiman, art by Brian Talbot and Mark Buckingham. Not to be confused with Lindsay Buckingham. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> The guy from Fleetwood Mac. Oh, okay. I think about Fleetwood Mac literally every time I see this Mark Buckingham dude's <laughs> name. <laughs> I just think about Fables. Oh, is that his series? Yeah, Willingham Buckingham. Bill Willingham and Mark Buckingham are the Fables team for most of the series. Oh, okay. So Bill Willingham is not an artist. He's just a he's just a writer. He's a writer. Yeah, I see. Cover is by Dave McKeon. We have a naked man in the dark with a door of light in front of him, and he's looking to the side at a shadowy figure of a woman. Yeah. Also, a butt. He's not looking at a butt. We can see his butt. Yeah, because he's a naked man. Yeah. We open on Orpheus floating on the sea, calling in vain for his wife, Eurydice. We can only see his head above the water. It comes to him then that he must be dreaming, and he smiles. Father? Morpheus appears and tells Orpheus to wake soon. It is, after all, your wedding day. I have had a strange dream, father. I was floating on the sea, calling my wife's name. What does it mean? I love this Morpheus line. Am I a hedge wizard that I should interpret your dreams for you? Dreams are composed of many things, my son. 
with images and hopes of fears and memories, memories of the past and memories of the future. You're saying I was dreaming the future? Something that has not yet happened? Perhaps. I'm your son. Why won't you tell me what you know? Because you are my son. So, Greek mythology note, in some versions of the myth, Orpheus is the son of Apollo. As we learned back in issue number 30, Dream has a sort of kinship with Apollo, but they are not the same entity. In most versions, Orpheus' mother is the muse Calliope. Now, as Orpheus wakes up, he has his friend Aristeus sitting over him. Orpheus, you were crying out in your sleep. Aristeus is a satyr. Right, I have written here, he is either a satyr or a fawn. Right, and I believe that in the mythology, Aristeus is a god. But here they just kind of, it's funny actually, at one point, Orpheus introduces him to someone and is just like, this is my friend Aristeus, he's a farmer. As if that's not a fucking satyr that you just introduced. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, he, he's, he farms things. <laughs> yeah. The character who takes this role in the myth is sometimes a satyr and is sometimes the character Aristeus. They seem to have been fused for this story. Aristeus is not usually a satyr. Is he usually a god? I think he's a man. Oh, okay. Well, alright. Greek mythology, as we are sure to see over the course of this issue, is not a super strong suit for me. Now, Aristeus recalls his own wedding day and mentions that his wife is long dead. It was a long time ago. People die. You get over it. It's part of life. Aristeus asks if they're going to have roast ox at the wedding, and Orpheus says that no meat will be served. No living thing is to die at my wedding. I do not hold with sacrifice. It is good to sacrifice before you wed. You will have wine. Of course, my friend, and dancing. Now we see Calliope. She rushes down from a building with lots of columns to greet her son yeah probably immortal as she looks to be considerably younger than orpheus here right and indeed we met calliope in sandman number 17 what was the name of that story calliope oh right yeah at which time she was i mean it was a very dark story she was repeatedly raped in it yeah but it's worth noting that she was portrayed as an object of desire yeah that's true this is also the page where he he's introducing aristeus to his mother and he says he's a farmer (laughs) i was like dude (laughs) you're just gonna like well i mean he's introducing his satyr friend to his mother the god yeah i guess he he also glosses over the fact that his mother is a god so maybe he just spends most of his time hanging out with gods so he doesn't mention it <laughs> when he's introducing people. Yeah, so this page quickly reintroduces us to some facts that we sort of loosely picked up over issue 17 and issue 29 when we first met Orpheus, if we've read those issues by the time we read this annual, which is that Calliope is Morpheus's wife and Orpheus is their son. Mother, will father be here? I would not miss my son's wedding, Orpheus. Hello, father. It's interesting... As usual, Morpheus frames his presence here as a duty, an obligation. If you're saying that Morpheus is kind of a prick, I agree with you. And he's going to get a lot worse (laughs) before this issue's over. Yeah. Next, Eurydice appears. 
Yeah, we should maybe mention this briefly. I think it might actually supposed to be Eurydice. I think, you know what? I think you're right. I think it's always K. I say Eurydice because that's the way that they pronounced it on the Nick Cave record. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah. And as Eurydice appears, Aristeus notes that she reminds him of his own wife. And it's at this point that all of Morpheus, who is in this context called Oneros, that his siblings all show up. Yeah, first Death, who announces that she likes weddings. I was not certain you would come, my sister. Oh, it's not just me. It's all of us. And we get a panel here showing us the other six Endless, aside from Dream. Yeah, and this is the first time that we've seen one of them. That's right. This is the first appearance of the Prodigal, who is introduced here as Olithros. Yeah, and if you look it up, which I did, you can find out that Olithros is a word that means destruction. So that's the first time uh, that that name has sort of been filled in for you. And she introduces all of them using the Greek word for their name. Right, but we know them as death, delirium, destiny, desire, despair, and now destruction. Although I think he'll only actually be called Elethros in this story. I want to point out here that we have a different despair, much more masculine looking, and she has a bad eye. This is not the same despair we met in issue 31. Oh, you or know? At least she's changed dramatically. Yeah, she's still introduced as being an aunt mm-hmm. to Orpheus. But uh, yeah, I didn't notice that it was a different... I thought it was just a kind of a different art style. I didn't realize that it was meant to be a completely different appearance for the character. Other notes here as each of the endless greet the happy couple. We learn that Delirium almost got married once. And I like that Destiny says, I greet you, Eurydice, on the day of your wedding. Uncle, won't you wish us well? I am Destiny. I am Potmos. I do not wish. I know. What must happen will happen. That is the way of it. Yeah, he doesn't show affection for them. He just neutrally acknowledges that he is here and he greets them. Yeah, it is your birthday. (laughs) So the wedding ceremony gets done in a couple of panels. They kiss, Calliope cries. Aristeus looks on with a look that's sort of difficult to decipher. Maybe he's happy for them. Maybe there's something else in his eyes here. Yeah, it's a complicated look. And now we cut to, it's interesting, we sort of do like a a non-cutaway cutaway, because we're still on his face when we cut a few hours into the future, where he is dancing and asking for another skin of wine. Yeah, not a page turn, just hard cut to Aristeus drunk. Right. Well, are you enjoying the wedding, my friend? Orpheus asks him, and Orpheus can be seen with his lyre here. Right. Assuredly, it's wonderful. You aren't dancing? I am content to make music, Aristeus, but you dance. Enjoy yourself. I will see nothing but happy faces on my wedding day. By this time, all of the Endless except Death and Dream have gone. As Orpheus wonders why, Death says, They had things to do, Orpheus. But you stayed. I also have things to do, my nephew. So, at this point, Aristeus asks Eurydice to accompany him away from the wedding. Something urgent and private he has to tell her, and she agrees easily. I hate to think of anyone being troubled on my wedding day. (laughs) Yeah, he says he's got a problem. And I wrote down, is it a boner? (laughs) Wow. Wow. Spoiler alert. Yeah. (laughs) That's so dark. (laughs) That is his problem. 
As they wander away from the wedding, we can see Calliope petitioning Dream for a dance. I do not dance. Not even with you, my wife. Oh, Dream is so much the awkward kid at the party. What a dick. And by the awkward kid at the party, I'm referring, of course, to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Do you also say, I do not dance, when uh, (laughs) when people ask you to? I sometimes use contractions. Well, that's that's good, you know. Data can build a robot that can do that, but he can't do it himself. Yeah, the technological singularity kind of failed him there. Mm-hmm. So Eurydice meets up with Aristeus, wondering what's the problem. He says, there's something I want and I can't have it, and I'm going to take it anyway. That's my problem. I think you've drunk a little more than is good for you, Aristeus. What do you need from me? You. I want you. Aristeus tries to rape Eurydice... She kicks him in the balls and runs away. Boom! Right in the priapism. (laughs) You've got to knock it off with the boner jokes. Not forever, just for a little while. Also, do you see the slobber on his face as he's, like, going after her? Yeah, he's a douchebag. He's he's fucking slobbering, man. He's practically rabid. Yeah, he's really drunk and an asshole. So, yeah. So she kicks him between the legs... And runs for it. Oh, I want to point out that the speech bubble when he is kicked in the balls goes, I. <laughs> That's A-E-I, listeners. Yeah. But as she flees, she steps on a viper, which bites her on the ankle. Pretty much and... killing her instantly. And she utters Batman's catchphrase here. <laughs> is that a joke that Batman readers will pick up? Yeah, Batman says this. Batman has this grunt all the time. The little, like, HH grunt. <laughs> just, uh, or just, uh. yeah, it's a, I think Grant Morrison started it, but it's all over the Tinian stuff as well. So I want to point out, as presented here, Eurydice's death looks kind of like poetic justice for Orpheus' refusal to sacrifice an animal to the gods at his wedding, Right. Aristeus even said there ought to be a sacrifice, and what results is the bride dying at the wedding. I have never seen another version of the story that had this moral. Yeah, it does seem like he was kind of tempting fate. Mm -hmm. Back at the wedding, death looks away and then fades from sight. She seemingly has a moment here where she considers telling Orpheus exactly what is going on, but can't bear to do it herself. Orpheus? Yes, Aunt Talute? Nothing. Aristeus bursts in, crying and apologizing, as we see... Elsewhere, death standing sadly over Eurydice's body. Has something happened, Aristeus? Has something happened to Eurydice? And that brings us to chapter two. Orpheus is on a cliff overlooking Eurydice's pyre, Eurydice's funeral, but he's ignoring it. He didn't attend the funeral. Yeah, once again, he has more more lack of ceremony than might be good for him. You know, he refused to do a sacrifice at his own wedding. And now he's refusing to attend his wife's funeral. Yeah, he's also kind of, I don't know how to put it, privileging his own emotions? Yeah. There's Uh, a line here that I like. Some things are too big to be seen. Some emotions too huge to be felt. Yeah, I wrote that down too. Up on the cliff here, Orpheus plays the Song of the Gate. And indeed a gate appears, a gate to dreaming. Have we mentioned that he has his lyre with him here? He does. Okay, wow, we get an amazing half page here of Dream's castle. It has the same three familiar guardians, but the architecture of it looks very different from any other time we've seen it. 
Yeah, this is fantastic. There's a repeating motif of the Greek facade, the Greek temple facade with the pillars. But we also see just an array of statues of strange creatures and gods. There are angels. There's what appears to be a Buddha. Orpheus, says the hippogriff as he approaches. We have heard of your loss. You have our sympathies also. I do not need your pity, hippogriff. It was freely given, boy. You should not scorn it. Don't pity me. As he walks in, also, we can see that the stairs out of the palace lead into a vast pool of water. There's no way to enter the palace except the one that he took, apparently, to just appear on the stairs. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. You could show up by boat, like in Venice. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. And he could show up, like, by the ferry to the underworld, which we... Oh, yeah, that's true. <clears throat> so he approaches Morpheus. Morpheus is looking cool here with his cloak looking like a shadow all billowing in the wind yeah we find dream sort of staring brutally which is something that he does you should have gone to her funeral why to say goodbye i have not yet said goodbye to eurydice you should you are mortal it is the mortal way you attend the funeral you bid the dead farewell you grieve then you continue with your life and at times, the fact of her absence will hit you like a blow to the chest, and you will weep. But this will happen less and less as time goes on. She is dead. You are alive. So live. I just gotta say, this looks really cool. Morpheus looks really cool in his, like, costume here. And we've got Orpheus across from him, holding his lyre. And behind them, this, like, starry field of, like, yeah. It's just... Really awesome looking art on this page. Now, Orpheus disagrees with that last point about Eurydice being dead. She's alive in the underworld, he points out. And he asks for Dream's help to bring her back to the living world. You are talking foolishness, my son. I will hear no more of it. But father... No more. Very well then, no more. I am no longer your son. That was a bit rash. Orpheus, come back here. Now. No. Well, like you said, he's privileging his own emotions. He's so blinded by inconsolable rage that he doesn't care who he hurts. <laughs> What's that? That's from Quantum of Solace. Okay. <laughs> yeah, he's, I mean, he's, I think it's fair to say that he's wallowing a little bit here. He is certain in his conviction, right, that what he's feeling is bigger and worse than anyone has felt before. And when, when Dream tries to tell him otherwise, he doesn't buy it. At the same time, though, you can kind of see where he gets it. Like, Dream is choosing to spend this time staring brutally into the distance well he's got a lot on his mind yeah i i think morpheus is sort of cold here in the advice that he gives but it's not bad advice right you know you you do grieve for your loved ones and then move on that that is the way of the world yeah a true statement well written on this page okay so orpheus wanders to the top of a very high cliff well specifically he wakes up right where we left him oh you're right it's the same cliff he's still overlooking the funeral pyre yeah when he leaves the dreaming he just wakes up suicide eh laddie do you really think that's your wisest course it's Olethros, played in this episode by brian blessed <laughs> he's an awfully big man and he's got really cool looking pauldrons and a scary Magneto helmet. Yeah, it's worth pointing out that he's the one who shows up to the wedding in full battle armor. Yeah. We cannot be together alive. We can be together in the underworld. Cold and pale and immobile, but together. Alethros laughs and says that's a pretty stupid idea. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, he gives a big booming laugh and says, That's the stupidest thing I've heard in centuries. He takes his helmet off and he's a big old guy with a great big bushy beard. Yes, indeed. Uh, big wild red hair. Yeah, yeah. I wish I looked like this dude. One of only one or two endless, right, to not have the pale and dark look, right? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. I guess Delirium has multicolored hair. So Elithros says that Orpheus is more in love with the idea of Eurydice dead than he ever was with the girl alive. And Orpheus does not take it well. Take that back. You will take that back or I'll... Calm down or I'll throw you up in the air and catch you as I did when you were a mite smaller. Elithros, you wouldn't dare. <laughs> try me, lad. Just try me. Now, you've spoken to your father, I take it. Yes, he was no help. He's a dark one, your father. He does care for you, though. He has a strange way of showing it. Aye, but that's his way. He's set in his ways. Elitros suggests that Orpheus talk to Aunt Talut, a.k.a. Death. She can help, though there will be conditions. Orpheus asks how he can find her, and Elitros says that he should just look for her at her house. Actually, this is interesting. For example, you could die. You'd see her then. Of course, you won't get much chance to talk, but you'll see her. You could be born, but you people never remember that particular conversation with her. I don't know why not. You just don't. Or you could go to her house. Yeah, I don't remember if this has been mentioned before, but death meets every person, not just at the moment of death, but at the moment of birth. Yeah, I think this is the first time I found that out. Yeah, Orpheus asks if death will be in the house. Elithros replies that she is, of course, everywhere. Meaning she'll be there. So Orpheus entreats Elithros to help send him there, and he does. He cracks his knuckles and makes a huge explosion. And yeah, an explosion which just seems to freeze in the air as Orpheus walks into it. Yeah, and it's, it's really cool. Yeah, this dude's fucking awesome. Obviously, he, he seems to be pretty important to the series based on the huge build-up before we finally met him, so... Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing more of Destruction. He's got a couple of other good lines here. He says, Well, you're a romantic fool, but that's no surprise. You get that from your father. And also, when asked why Death needs a house, Olethros says, She has lots of things, although she seldom has much use for them. You should see her floppy hat collection. <laughs> so Orpheus arrives at Death's house, which is sort of a 90s-style apartment, and he is very off-put by this. Because he doesn't understand the 90s. Yeah, she's got... What are these called? Stage lights? These hanging overhead directional lights? Oh, sure. You can call them that. There's an issue of Cosmopolitan on the table here. Yeah. She's got uh, a fishbowl with the fish food sitting right next to it. Mr. Rogers style. Yep. Death appears in 80s punk attire, telling him, The place isn't really in any shape for visitors. He complains that the place is so strange to his eyes. So she changes it to make it more like what he'd expect to see. Yeah, and she also changes herself. She's in a very weird, like, sort of Victorian gothic dress now. And the walls have fountains of dudes puking and all sorts of swirly lights. And it's all in black. Yeah, she's got the uh, demon face from the Tomb of Horrors here. She asks what he wants, and he says... A wedding gift to replace the one you took from me. It was her time to go, Orpheus. People die. It's okay. It happens. 
Go on with your own life. You have many things to do, many songs to play and sing. Not without her. Give her back to me, Tillut. I wish I could, Orpheus. She's not mine anymore. She's in the underworld. That's where you people go. She's in Hades' realm. So Orpheus decides he's going to go to Hades' realm, but the rules are mortals can't go there without dying. Orpheus remembers that Heracles said that he went to Hades. Listen, idiot, you can't go to the underworld and come back alive. Not if you're mortal. And Heracles was full of it. He just got dead drunk for a couple of weeks in Phrygia and told everyone he'd been in the land of the dead. Orpheus mentions that Alethros told him it could be done. Your uncle Alethros has a big mouth, you know that? You can do it then? Death says she can do it. All she has to do is agree never to take him. But there's a catch. I don't care about the rules. There are always rules. All I care about is Eurydice. Look me in the eyes, Orpheus. We get a panel here of Death's eye with a glint in it. Yeah, and when we look back to Orpheus, there are now tears streaming from his eyes. But Death says, okay. So yeah, basically now he can never die. She says, I hope it works out for you. And he says, but don't you know? I thought you could foretell the future. I don't need to know the future. When the future's over, then it's me. She tells him where to find the gate to Hades' realm and orders him to go home. And then he's home. Yeah, but not before he's sort of like standing on her face. <laughs> like as he is transported out of her realm, she sort of becomes the landscape in which he's standing. Yeah, that's a pretty cool panel. Yeah, I just like the idea that her house exists outside time. So it's, you know, all 90s looking. She keeps it as a 90s loft because that's what she likes. Right. That was pretty cool. So that brings us to the end of chapter 2. At the start of chapter 3, we have a very texty page as Orpheus makes his long, hard way to the gate. There are no songs of this journey, we learn. Mention is made on this page of the witches of Thessaly who gnaw the flesh from men's faces for their spells and pull down the moon for their own purposes. We also learn that as he travels, Orpheus carries no weapons and raises his hand to no one. This in a time when all men were warriors. After a long walk, he finds a cave. Could have saved some time and just said that. That's pretty much this page. <laughs> Orpheus finds this deep cavern that leads to the underworld, and the vastness of the cavern is effectively conveyed here by two full pages of Orpheus traversing it. Yeah, and we see some great landscapes. There's no text on these two pages at all. Just incredible landscapes of the cave. Some wonderful cave formations. Here's a panel of him looking down over a river, an underground river hundreds of feet below. Down a long stair, he finds this glowing river shrouded in fog, and Charon appears, the ferryman to the underworld. You are not dead! I have come to speak to your lord and lady. Will you take me to them? Oh so, what have you brought for me? A sprig of mistletoe, a gift from the oracle at Delphi. The bow of gold, aye, that is the payment for the living, though I've rarely seen it. From the dead I would take a penny to ferry them across the Styx. Very well, enter. And Orpheus gets into the boat, not avoiding the water as he does. Is the water of the sticks supposed to be dangerous? I thought so, but I'm not sure. Okay. I thought that was pretty cool that there's a specific price he takes to take a living person across the river, but he never gets it. Yeah. This part's cool. Karen asks Orpheus to play for him, noticing his loot. When Orpheus does start to play, Karen is so silent that Orpheus asks if he's offended him. And Karen, tears streaming down his face, just replies quietly, Don't stop. 
Karen drops Orpheus off on the other side, telling them that if he returns, it'll be by another path. And he adds, beware of the dog. Yeah, that would be Cerberus? Kerberus, right? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I guess we've been abusing the sea the entire <laughs> the entire issue. That makes sense. Anyway, I, I de- you definitely hear it pronounced both ways. Yeah, in the modern day. Yeah. Anyway, we see the vast shadow of this three-headed dog, which we do not see in the flesh. And in a couple panels, Orpheus plays his lyre to soothe the beast and sneaks by. Yes, indeed. Now he comes to just a huge mob of people with what looks like a gate in the distance, two huge stones. This is an unimaginably vast cavern with the naked glowing forms of the Legion of the Dead standing between him and these giant objects, these giant obelisks. Yeah, and as we get closer to them, we see that they are thrones and the enormous Hades and Persephone sit upon them. Well, 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 Orpheus the Balladeer. Hast thou a song for us then, little mortal man? Yes. Yes, I do. And now we get the uh, titular song of Orpheus. Orpheus plays his song telling of his lost love and how he was not strong enough to bear his grief. And as he plays, all of the dead cry. Ghosts hate him. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the... The little banner ads at the bottom of articles on the internet. Ghosts hate this one little trick. (laughs) Right. He has this one weird trick that ghosts hate. (laughs) In his song, he goes on to remind Hades and Persephone that uh, love exists uh, even in the underworld between the two of them. At this, Hades looks kind of skeptical, but Persephone smiles a little bit. Okay. We're calling that a smile. That's all right. I thought it was kind of a bemused look. This guy's knees look like dicks. All right, thanks for that. (laughs) God fucking damn it. This ain't the little mermaid. (laughs) All of the underworld stops to hear the song of Orpheus. We see the eternal punishments pause as he plays. Ixion's wheel stands still with wonder. The vultures cease to gnaw Titius's liver. Tantalus makes no effort to satisfy his hunger or thirst. I think they should have kept torturing Ixion. I fucking hate Ixion, standing at the top of that goddamn lightning tower. What are you talking about? Final Fantasy X? I've played Final Fantasy X a bunch of times. Ixion's like the horse summon in Final Fantasy X. I don't remember him standing on top of a tower or understand why you hate him. If you go back to Thunderplanes... There's a, a really easy to accidentally trigger boss fight with Dark Ixion. Oh yeah, Dark Ixion's a tough boss. I mean, they're all tough, but... It's worth noting here that we are talking about the remaster of Final Fantasy X. These boss fights were not in the original PlayStation 2 version. Right, which was a good decision. <laughs> Speaking of the eternal punishments, I want to mention here, we see the Furies weeping as Orpheus sings his song, and... We can recognize that one is young, one is middle-aged, and one is old. It's a Hecate appearance. Oh, okay. I see. It's the old one whose knees look like dicks. Thanks for that. That's who that is. Okay. You really don't want to acknowledge that those knees look like dicks, do you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter whether I acknowledge it or not. <laughs> you're, really, you're really upset by this. 
This is like the this is like the penny arcade. You ruined my drawing. <laughs> you ruined I ruined your comic book. Everyone will die, Orpheus goes on to sing, but he begs a tiny boon, a short lifespan with Eurydice. If they can't grant that, he says, he'd rather stay here and be dead. It's interesting, his song reveals a level of insight that he himself has not shown. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. He's just been he kind of sings, running into everything, yeah. like, bullheadedly. He you know? sings about death with a kind of greater perspective, but he hasn't found perspective himself. He's still basically refusing to accept it, being fairly immature about the whole thing. I mean, you know, it sucks because it's a an inherently tragic event that was made super tragic for the purposes of legend, but still. Thou hast made the Furies cry, Orpheus. They will never forgive you for that. Thou art disrupting my perfectly ordered world, Orpheus. So be it, but there are conditions. There are rules. There are always rules. That is a callback to a line that Orpheus said earlier. None leave the underworld by the way they came to it. There is a path that leads upwards. Follow the path and do not deviate from it. Now leave. Go thou back to the world above, and Eurydice shall follow thee as thy shadow. But halt not. Speak not. Turn not to look behind thee. Till ye both have left our kingdom and gained the upper air of your native Thrace. And then, and only then, shall she be thine. Do not look back. He extends his huge, wrinkly hand, pointing at the path that Orpheus must walk. Orpheus points out here that Thrace is hundreds of miles away, and Persephone tells him, No, all lands lie above the underworld. He left that place, and the dark laughter of Hades followed him for many leagues. So Orpheus walks out of the underworld, Hades' laughter echoing after him. He walks on in silence, not hearing Eurydice behind him. And we learn that as the hours passed, the conviction grew that he was alone, that there was no one behind him. In the end, he sees daylight and knows that he's alone, that he's been the butt of Hades' joke. And he, he looked back. Yeah, and we get a slow motion of him turning around here to look. And... There's Eurydice, and she is pulled back into the underworld as he looks back at her. No. No! That's a big no. Chapter 4. Orpheus is an old man, and all of the animals gather in peace to hear him play. Yeah, I wrote Disney-type shit. Yeah. <laughs> Calliope, still young and beautiful, approaches Orpheus. She scares off all the animals. It seems like... Orpheus' only friends are animals he hasn't seen humans in years. You scared them. You scared my friends. Orpheus, it's me. I know it's you, mother. You scared my friends. I... I'm sorry. I read this as him being a pretty big dick. Just because he wants to hang out with animals and is annoyed when people come to see him? Well, yeah, he won't acknowledge her. He's just like, I know it's you. You scared my friends. I know it's you, but I was playing music for all the animals. Yeah. I was having a big Bambi party. He asks how she is, and she says not fine. She and Dream apparently broke up. They had a fight after Orpheus tripped the underworld. Dream could have intervened on Orpheus' behalf with Hades, but no. I walked out on him. I have told him I will see him no longer. I think I have hurt his pride. So neither of us is speaking to him. He is not one to forget a slight, nor to forgive. Do you still love him? I do not know. I do not think so. Is that my fault? It's been coming for a long time. He cannot share anything, any part of himself. 
I thought I could change him, but he does not change. He will not. Perhaps he cannot. That's the big thematic underpinning of the series right there, in unsubtle terms. Well, yeah, I think in the present day stuff, we are actually starting to see him change a little bit. Mm-hmm. But, and, and now Orpheus starts being a dick again. I do not wish to talk of him or talk to you, my mother. She tells him to leave the wilderness and be with people again. But he says, people hurt you. People leave. I stay here. He reveals now that he tried to kill himself when he returned from Hades, but he can't. Death won't touch him. Only two kinds of people go to hell, those who are dead already, and those like me. Orpheus, I came here for a reason. I came to warn you, the Bacante are coming. You must leave this place and go somewhere else. I do not care about the Bacante. They are dangerous, my son, the sisters of the Frenzy, and they are coming here. I do not care about the Bacante. Uh, and she just whispers, goodbye, Orpheus. And then he's standing there alone as the wind slowly picks up. And, yeah, it's literally like zero time passes. The comic makes it clear. He says goodbye to her, and in the very next panel, he starts hearing the chant of the Bacante. That divine justice doesn't fuck around. Yeah, seemingly seconds later, the Bacante can be heard approaching, and then they burst into view these wild women, naked, covered in wine with ivy in their hair. We are the Bacche. Join us in our worship. Drink with us. Make love with us. Eat raw flesh with us. Rejoice with us. Orpheus refuses, saying he can give his love to only one woman, and he asks them to leave him in peace. We are the beloved of Dionysus, man. You do not give. We take. No, he says, but she hits him in the head with a club. Uh yeah, he says, ut. And, yeah, now we get them tearing him apart. They knock him down, rip his clothes off, tear him to pieces with their hands and teeth. We see one smash his lyre against a tree. There's then, one uh, making out with his severed head. It's really gross. Yeah, this is a very violent two pages here. And eventually his severed head gets thrown into the river. And we're right back where we started with him calling Eurydice, Eurydice. Right, his head alone in the water, calling in vain for Eurydice. Greek mythology note, versions of this story have the main ads sent by Dionysus to punish Orpheus for disdaining the worship of the gods. Orpheus, as a maker of music, had been a devotee of Dionysus specifically. Another version has angry women attacking Orpheus for refusing to love women. <laughs> okay. Here it seems mostly like a coincidence. They just happened to be rampaging this way and he wouldn't move. Well, yeah, as we mentioned, Neil Gaiman adds and subtracts little bits of significance from the story as he sees fit. Mm -hmm. He makes this a coincidence, whereas he made, you know, Eurydice's death not one, even though it is usually portrayed that way. Right. Yeah, so we see his head floating in the river, just like we did on the first page when he was on his way to be wed. And then we come to an epilogue. An effective cut from his head floating down the river to his head, apparently asleep, lying on a beach. Yeah, he's washed up on a beach. A snake approaches. The snake looks just like the one that killed Eurydice. Yeah, and we see Morpheus's fucking bondage boot smash it. Yeah, we can actually see the snake wriggle away in the next panel. So I guess he just scared it. Well, he heard it, at least. Yeah. Hello, Orpheus. Morpheus picks up the head, 
to speak face to face. You were unwise to seek favors of death, but you have made your own errors. It was your own life. I have come to say goodbye. It seemed the proper thing to do. He explains that the priests on this island will care for Orpheus. This is the Isle of Naxos where we last left Orpheus's severed head back in the French Revolution. I will not see you again. But father... Father? Did you not say you were no longer my son? Please, father, help me. Help me to die. Your life is your own, Orpheus. Your death likewise. Always and forever your own. Farewell. We shall not meet again. Father! Come back, please! Father. Orpheus watched as his father walked away, unable to turn his head even had he wanted to. His father walked away slowly, pace by pace, through the sand and foam. Orpheus watched through tear-stung eyes until he was out of sight. His father never even tried to look back. And my notes here say, Morpheus is a dick. <laughs> Well, let's talk about how Morpheus is a dick. Guy's a fucking asshole. Yeah, so let me ask you this question. Do you blame Dream for, like, his role in the whole tragedy of Orpheus, or do you just think that he's, like, clinically lacking in sympathy about the whole thing? I don't think that he did anything... I don't think he particularly had a huge hand in the badness mm -hmm. that happened to Orpheus. I mean, all he really did was, you know give good advice in a sort of shitty manner and refuse to intercede on behalf of Eurydice with Hades. Yeah, consistently in this story, the Endless refuse to use their powers or influence to, you know, to give their human family member any advantage. Well, Destruction uses his powers to open the way to the House of Death, and Death uses her powers when he entreats her to yeah she well, makes him immortal yeah that's true they don't they don't warn him about eurydice's death or prevent it in any way but yes. they do use their powers in ways that turn out to be rather ill-advised i mean they advise him against it but orpheus plows ahead anyway they offer him services which he should have refused <laughs> yeah it, it's interesting that destruction and death both eventually kind of cave mm -hmm. when he really like earnestly entreats them and dream never does yeah so that's an interesting layer to it because we can see why a seemingly unemotional uh, dispassionate approach to orpheus might have we can see why it might have been a good idea yeah but orpheus reads it as coldness yeah i guess i don't read it either way it's he's not particularly at fault I also don't see him as being particularly, you know, smart or better. <laughs> it's just that he's a dick, you know? <laughs> he's not responsible for the whole tragedy, but he is a he is a huge asshole, <laughs> you know? Like, I guess Orpheus is kind of an asshole to him, too. Yeah, Orpheus is kind of being an asshole to everybody, and I think it really comes through in this comic that Orpheus' reaction is, while understandable, also immature and selfish. He behaves, you know, like a character out of legend, but he doesn't behave like a particularly sensible person. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. What would you have liked to see Morpheus do differently in this story? Well, you know, he doesn't have to act on that compassion, but it'd be nice for him to show some compassion. You know what I mean? If he wasn't so aloof, his detachment from mortal affairs would come off as more wise and less just uncaring. 
Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I feel like if all seven of them are going to show up for the wedding, they should also show up for the funeral as well. That's a good point. So, back in Sandman number 29, Thermidor, that was the first time we met Orpheus, at least in the read order that we've been doing. Yeah, and also in publication order. Yeah. And at that time, he was a severed head that had been stolen by the French Revolution and was rescued from that by Joanna Constantine. Now, in that issue, Dream hired Constantine to recover Orpheus' head, saying that he couldn't get involved himself. So after reading this story, do you think there was really a cosmic rule preventing Dream from intervening directly? Or do you think he just wanted to keep his word about not seeing him again? Oh, I think it's more the latter, for sure. It's definitely just that he's made this declaration. Yeah. And he's going to stick to his guns on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's kind of an arrogant prick. Yes, indeed. And, you know, by the time of the French Revolution, he's starting to soften somewhat. He's already met Hobgadling by then and been, you know, yeah, sort of, sort of softened up by that. Yeah, and I guess he chose to intervene indirectly, at least. Yeah. So this is not the first time that we've seen sort of adaptations of existing stories. I think they did a pretty good job here. Definitely conveys a lot of the power and the traditional details of the story of Orpheus, while at the same time introducing the endless and some more of Gaiman's own cosmology into the story. Yeah, and it's good that you don't have to know a ton of Greek myth. It makes it understandable. Yeah, it's a pretty good telling of the story. A lot like the story of Emperor Norton back in issue 31 as well. It was a, you know, an effective telling of the story despite the introduction of new elements. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. This is a really packed issue. It's, what, 48 pages long? Yeah, close to that. And, you know, we just get, I don't know, there might be some moments where it seems a little long-winded. But basically... You know, all, all 48 pages are kind of put to good use. We get a lot of cool uh, and beautiful details. We get a lot of really great art. Yeah, the art is spectacular in this. Simple but iconic and functional character designs, both for the Endless and the mythological characters. Really wonderful vistas. Yeah, and even though it's an annual or a special, you know, the differences between annuals and specials can be kind of vague. Mm -hmm. But... Even though it is an annual, I would say it's an issue not to miss, since in publication order, it's the first appearance of destruction. Yeah, the first appearance of destruction, and as well, key insights into the story of Orpheus, which we have seen before, and which will come to have further significance in the series. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Anything else you want to say about this issue? I don't know how I feel about it, but... Well, what do you think about the portrayal of Aristeus at the time that the story of Orpheus was written, you know, an attempted rape was, I guess, probably a criminal act, but not like, <laughs> not considered the most depraved possible act. And here a kind of balance is struck or attempted to be struck between that portrayal. And, you know, he is obviously not cool what he's doing. Yeah, we don't get enough... We don't get enough of Aristeus to really understand him. Mm -hmm. He's a farmer. <laughs> He's a fucking mythological god creature, bro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good comic book. Now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, where I blindside Sean with a more recent Vertigo comic book. Once again. 
uh, yeah, this week, Sean's going to be reading Motherlands number one, which just came out this month from Vertigo, written by Cy Spurrier with art by Rachel Stott. All right. I'll give it a shot. Okay, so Sean just read Motherlands number one, written by Cy Spurrier with art by Rachel Stott and a cover by Eric Kanet, although this copy we actually have the variant cover by uh kim jung gi okay now Cy spurrier is the guy who wrote the x-men legacy series that focused on legion is that right yes that's true and that was the series that had legion as a uh, a warden of an interdimensional prison that was populated by all of his personalities it's entirely possible <laughs> well I'll, I'll have to check that okay so this is a comic book it begins with some exposition in a classroom much like the film serenity in which we are being told that there are infinite different worlds except they're not really infinite because people can only access the ones that have other human beings on them right and then the main character is this red-haired girl tabitha who gets taken out of her class to be told that her father has abducted her brother and they've run off to a different universe right now her mom is like a famous interdimensional bounty hunter who decides she's going to go look for them but then she doesn't do that and then we cut to the club scene from john wick as 30 years later, Tabitha is a total badass herself and is chasing this large naked man. Are you talking about just because John Wick's chasing a naked man in that part through a club after he climbs out of a hot tub? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, so there's like, there's some terminology here. People who move between dimensions are called puncturers. I think the puncturer is the gadget they use. Okay. Because I think Tabitha says that this guy has like, yeah, yeah, your puncturer is quite basic, she says to this guy. Okay. And then he goes on for a while about how he used to think that her mom was hot back when she used to have her own show about being an interdimensional bounty hunter. She brings him in. Turns out that he has intel in his brain that the telepathic computers read that tells where the most wanted fugitive in the world is, all the worlds, and that's her missing brother. Oh, her brother's the fugitive, not her dad for kidnapping Uh, him? I would have to check that, but I think it's her brother. Yeah, it's her brother, Bubba. So she has to team up with her horrible old mom to go track him down. Right. So what did you think? Did you like it? It was okay. I liked a lot of the imagination and the concepts in it. Yeah, I think it was just at the right level of weird. Okay. Like, yeah. It has a lot of fun weird, kind of like, it's sort of like a cantina scene from Star Wars. Yeah. Level weird, rather than a Grant Morrison number one <laughs> <laughs> level of weird. <laughs> That's kind of... On the nose, isn't it? Well, it reminded me a lot of the filth. Yeah. But it's the filth, except kind of easier to read, you know? Yeah, that's that's an interesting way of putting it. Because it's, once again, it's kind of a weird cop show. And it's all basically coherent, though. We're told what the rules are early on, and a logical story is being told within them. Right, yeah. It exposits in a very handy, perhaps a little bit too handy way. But I, I thought it worked. I liked the fact that, you know, you complained in the filth that, like, somebody has to give somebody a blowjob or something <laughs> as part of, like, their, how their technology works. But this comic book features, like, a female hero who's not sexualized in the least. This is true. Yeah, she wears powered armor. And I do want to call out, the cover of this book has two women in powered armor standing over an unconscious dinosaur thing. It's just kind of an awesome, crazy, fun cover. Yeah. Where I will take it to task is on the ridiculously vulgar dialogue. Okay. Can you give us an example? Can I give you an example? 
amicably part shitting ways when I've still got your cocksnot drying in my hair? You think I don't have agents begging to rep me? Top fucking flighters, Larry, who'll, who'll have you administering rim jobs out the back of fan expos with all the other no longer somebody's within a year. That's pretty harsh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and like, okay, these people are having a divorce at the moment, so they're pretty angry. But this is throughout the book. Cocksnot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she said that. Throughout the book. <laughs> Cocksnot specifically, no. Hmm. But I mean, the whole naked guy chase scene, he's talking about how hot her mom used to be on TV. Yeah. So you weren't having that much fun with the ultra-violent dialogue. No, I can't say that I was. Okay. I mean, there's a level of, like, frank sexuality and vulgarity that, that's realistic, and then there's a level that's like, we know we just got rated R. Yeah, I guess, but this takes place in the future. Okay. So, I mean, like, you gotta figure, if the way that we talk now would have seemed impossibly vulgar to folks 50 years ago, you know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, I know what you're saying. I don't know if I buy it. <laughs> okay. One of the swears that I liked is that somebody somebody says Christ's. Yeah, they, they do say Christ's repeatedly because there was apparently, there was more than one because there were many different planes. Right, exactly. Well, do you think you'll be back for Motherlands number two? I don't know. I could I could be making my mind up yet about the series. Although I'm not thrilled that she has to work with her awful mom. Um, awful Hollywood mom is a character type that I have already complained about in this segment. Yeah, when we read Effigy. Yeah. Yeah, and so I'm not uh, I'm not thrilled with where the book seems to be going in this last couple of pages. Like any whiff of like show business, <laughs> <laughs> and you're just done. Well, imagine this book if she had to team up with her mom, who was you know a former bounty hunter and hadn't been on TV and wasn't complaining about no longer being on TV. Mm -hmm. Like, if her mom was just a hard-bitten cop, wouldn't that have been better? Yeah, it does seem like the whole like media angle is just a way to inject some crassness and cynicism yeah that the plot doesn't really need yeah that's a good way of putting it i wonder if though what this is is that it's like a sort of buddy cop scenario between the mother and daughter mm -hmm. and the fact that one of them is like a very working class bounty hunter yeah. and the other one is a former reality tv show star bounty hunter is setting them up to have differences which they will then overcome later oh, okay okay yeah well the second issue might be worth a look i just have certain trepidations that's all all right fair enough when we return to sandman we're finally starting a game of you this time for real <laughs> all right looking forward to it but join us next week where we are going to look at two issues of john constantine hellblazer Written by the man himself, Grant Morrison. Is he the man himself? Is that what people mean when they say... I think in some context, he's the man himself. He's, he's a noteworthy figure. All right, we'll see you there. Hey, if you like our show, you should check out our website. That's vertigize.blueberry.com. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y is how you spell blueberry in this very limited context. And we've got lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. Hit us up on Twitter. You can find me, at vertigize. And me, at BlankCastSean. Send us an email, vertiguys at gmail.com. Or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash vertiguys. If you're listening to our show on iTunes or on the Apple Podcasts app, 
do us a favor, help us grow our audience by leaving a positive rating or a review. That would be awesome. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody. I'm Eric. Sean and I write and host the show. It is produced by Sean. The webmaster is me. Our theme music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Facebook.com slash guys. <laughs> Let me do it. All right, all right. Facebook.com slash Vertiguys. I almost said Facebook.com slash Gmail. <laughs> That's probably a thing. That's probably a page that exists. It's not ours. Yeah. Um, we cannot take credit for maintaining that page. No. Uh, I can't really take that much credit for maintaining the Facebook page, but, you know, one does what one can. 